Hello and welcome to Crafting Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman and I'm one of your co-hosts. Every week we bring you interviews with makers and artists of all kinds that identify as female, non-binary, and transgender. Today's guest is Pooja of Whirl and Whittle. Based in Canada, Pooja is the Indian-born artist behind Whirl and Whittle, crafting wooden and ceramic pieces which celebrate the inherent beauty in each object's peculiarities. Pooja chooses to embrace blemish in her works and herself in a world which relies heavily on flawlessness and statistics. Her work is grounded in the belief that the world around us and the things within it are unique rather than imperfect. Growing up in a multi-generational home in Mumbai, India, Pooja was introduced to woodworking at a young age by her grandfather, a formerly trained carpenter and model maker. She spent many of her days observing him make furniture and hand-carved pieces. His love for design and grasp of technique captivated her and bled into her own practice. Driven by a fascination with design and art, Pooja studied architecture at Mumbai University. However, it wasn't until her final year her passion for building furniture was unearthed. This realization inspired her to shift gears and apply for a furniture design program at the Savannah College of Art and Design. In 2014, she relocated to Savannah, Georgia to pursue her passion for woodworking and furniture. After the initial cultural shock, Pooja recognized that this was what she was waiting for. Surrounded by avant-garde technology and excellent collaborators, she used the following two years learning and exploring her passion for the handmade. Upon graduating in 2016, Pooja began her career as a furniture designer at Stylex Seating in New Jersey, an opportunity that brought her incredible growth, but left her craving for handmade pieces. On weekends, she would work on honing her woodworking skill at a communal workshop in New York City. In 2019, Pooja relocated to Canada and decided to pursue her passion of becoming an artist. In late 2019, she registered her business and Whirl and Whittle was born. Um, you all know that I am a sucker for somebody else who also um, carves wood. And I will say that Pooja carves amazing pieces. Uh, so it was great getting to talk to her and just learn more about her story, learn about the story behind each of her collections and especially the collection that is coming out just next month. Um, before hopping into the conversation with Pooja, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Matthew from Artegiano Serio, Candice, CJ Woodgrain, Lee at Lee Runyon, Annette 513 Woodworks, Katie Thompson, Women of Woodworking, Kevin Lefty's Woodshop, Christy Twisted Twine, Jeremy, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Rachel Moody Makes, Laura Oakley Soap Company, Brandy Studio Obey, Ellen Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your continued ongoing support, helping to make this podcast happen every week. Um, and if you can tell, my voice is a little deeper than it normally is, thanks to a cold knocking me out these past couple of days. Um, I want to make sure that I mention again, so last week we had a guest host, Bonnie Tulmambani, uh, and that is an opportunity that I would like many of you to uh, try out. So there is a form in on Instagram at Freeman Furnishings with the link in the bio. You can complete the form. It's just a few quick questions um, about why you want to be a guest host and you know who you would want to have on an interview. Um, nothing too formal, um, but it starts the conversation off between you and me about it. So please go check that out. I would really love to continue uh, in a new way to amplify voices across this platform. All right, let's head on into the conversation with Pooja. Um, so I do like to kind of get started by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So would you do that for me? Yeah. Um, so my name is Pooja Pavaskar. Um, it's phonetic, so you read it as you say it. Um, I was born and brought up in India um, and moved around a little bit. So um, I did my undergrads 
in Mumbai in architecture. Um, did my master's in furniture design from um, SCAD, Savannah, Georgia. Um, worked in New Jersey for a little bit and we eventually immigrated to Canada in 2019 and that's when I started Whirlin Whittle. And yeah, when I started it, um, I started off by creating um, home decor, functional home decor. So vases, bowls, incense holder, candlestick holders. But over the last year and this year, um, I kind of decided that I wanted to get into more sculptural pieces, like abstract sculptures. So yeah. I'm slowly trying to pivot towards that, but Mm -hmm. still doing both. So a little bit of home decor and then some sculptures. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've just, this year, I just started my um, graduate degree MFA for 3D design. So I've found so far, like all of you who have an architecture background seem to grasp design so much quicker than the rest of us I don't think so it's just I feel like we all are on our own journeys of getting to design yeah Mm -hmm. and you said so you did your graduate work in Savannah yes okay in furniture design in furniture design yeah what why gravitate towards furniture design so it's a long story I'll try to keep it short Um, but um, I was born in Mumbai and I lived in a multi-generational family so I lived with my parents my baby sister and my dad's parents and my dad's dad was a carpenter So he actually came from a family of farmers. So they had like huge plots of farmland outside of Mumbai, a few hours outside of Mumbai. And it was just decided for him that he was going to be a farmer. But for some reason, um, he gravitated towards furniture, carpentry. So he when he was in his late teens, he ran away from his house and did a diploma in carpentry and eventually moved to Mumbai. Um, and then got married, uh, started a family, had four kids of his own and also was raising uh, two additional kids. So he was raising his siblings' kids. So he ended up doing a regular carpentry job, but he did a ton of carpentry wood carving for himself so um, my house in Mumbai was just full of stuff that he had made and um, because Indian society is a little different than American society Mm -hmm. so like when I was a kid my parents were working and trying to build their careers so we were raised by my grandparents so my earliest memories of like anything was like hanging out with my grandfather and just (laughs) he used to like constantly talk about he was I feel like he was obsessed with wood really (laughs) and (laughs) he also respected wood so like for him he was like okay you cannot force it to be something that you want you have to collaborate with wood and you have to like understand the temperament of the wood every wood is different some woods are hard some are soft and you have to like take that into consideration when you're making stuff and that kind of stuck with me Um, and even when I was in architecture school like every project that I made like he was with me making these big architectural models and we used to make them in wood (laughs) so I was I feel like I always gravitated towards wood and furniture because of that and when I started working after I graduated from architecture school. Even when I was doing projects, I was like, okay, we should do the ceiling in wood. Like I was always like pushing for like woodworking projects. Mm -hmm. And at one point I was like, I just want to do furniture design. It's just what I want to do. Like architecture was fun, but Mm -hmm. I did like that, like the connection that you have with materials when you're Mm -hmm. working with it yeah Mm -hmm. 
Was there a reason you didn't follow your grandfather's trajectory and, and do carpentry? Um, the thing was, like, when I was growing up, um, I come from a country that is like, a, <laughs> it's billion baby club. So mm-hmm. um, growing up, I was always, I always was told that you have to get a good career to make it big. So the two options that I had or what mm-hmm. was told to me was engineering or medicine. And that's what a lot of Indian people do. Mm-hmm. Everybody in my family except me <laughs> is an engineer. So that's what was told to me. And like by the end of high school, I, I just told my parents, I cannot do engineering. I don't understand math. <laughs> I don't get chemistry. I don't understand physics. I won't be able to do it for the rest of my life and carpentry was not even an option Mm because it was just because it fell close to arts and if you want to have a good life in India arts is not the traditional Mm -hmm. route for you yeah so architecture was like a a balance between engineering and design yeah, say, there's a lot of math in architecture too. Like it is, but <laughs> and I feel like that is where I kind of like started moving away from architecture because I was like, this is I like designing, but I do not necessarily enjoy the aspect of executing it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it even in your? Like, did you think at the time you were going to university that you might find yourself leaving India? No, that was, for some reason, that was never, that never was something that I expected would happen to me because I was very happy with my life in India. Like, I loved living in a big family with my parents and grandparents and uh, my, I have a sister that's three years younger to me. So she was the one who decided that she wanted to move to the States mm-hmm. for master's. And um, I did have like furniture design in the back of my mind. I wasn't necessarily planning on getting a master's in it. I was just going to practice it mm-hmm. on the side. Um, but at one point we were just sitting down for a meal and my dad is like, okay, your little sister has already decided that she's getting a master's. What are you thinking of doing? And I was like, I don't plan on getting another degree. I'm just happy with what I have. I have a good job. I was living with my parents. It was really nice. And my dad was like, you have to get a master's because like in India, because there is so much competition, having a good degree gives you an advantage over others Mm -hmm. and I had spoken to my parents a few times about furniture design but I wasn't happy with the furniture design masters that was Mm -hmm. happening in India we had only two schools and I was just I did not the the programs did not appeal to me Um, so I started researching colleges outside of India I was looking at Australia Singapore uh, and US Um, and that's when I saw like there was this kind of like an introductory seminar arranged by SCAD in India so I went for that and then spoke to one of their representatives and yeah I just really liked the program that they had for furniture design yeah and I applied, I got in, I got a scholarship, so it was really good. And then, (laughs) Is there, I mean, uh, I'm familiar with SCAD as far as like knowing about the program and that it's, you know, um, has a very good reputation. I'm not necessarily familiar with, um, you said they had, you know, kind of a specific like webinar presentation like there yeah uh, in India so is there are they actively like recruiting um as far as going outside the U.S. I think so because that I feel like the year that 
so this was 2016 um, is when I applied. Sorry, 2014 is when I applied. And that was the first year that SCAD had come to India. Um, and I feel like since then, I have seen more and more Indian students going to SCAD. Um, I feel like because India does not have similar programs, it is really easy to attract Indian students to come to SCAD because a lot of Indian kids are into game design, VFX, visual effects, all of these things. And SCAD has some really good programs for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, when, I guess I want to know like how, how much of a culture shock was it to go from India to... <laughs> it was a major culture shock for me it was um I actually did struggle a lot with um self-esteem um even though I was really enjoying the kind of technology that I was exposed to the kind of people that I was interacting with um everybody in furniture design program was like really collaboration over competition kind of attitude but I really struggled and had major identity issues when I was in Savannah. Um, I, not so much from the students, but like people outside the mm -hmm. school, I felt a lot of like judgment because of how I look and how I spoke. Um, and it took me a really long time. I feel like it took me at least five good years to really embrace myself. And Wall and Whittle was kind of born from that self-acceptance mm -hmm. um, approach that I had towards myself and my art. Yeah. So it took me some time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I really can, can only imagine just knowing, you know, I'm just starting that journey now and I don't, yeah. I don't know if it makes you feel any better, but I definitely struggle with the whole self-confidence and imposter syndrome oh my. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we all <laughs> I feel like all artists struggle with that mm -hmm. at some point in their life uh some more than the others but yeah I feel like imposter syndrome and artist kind of go hand in hand <laughs> <laughs> yeah I and I think um you know, I had I have friends who um, and acquaintances who had previously gotten their masters in other fields, and they all warned me that yeah. grad school is hard. Like it's just very hard. So I think yeah. um, maybe it's just due to like the intensity of the study. Like the time is very intense, right? You don't really yeah. have much time to just like yeah breathe. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. It goes by really quickly. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was, I feel like my biggest struggle was I moved to the States and the program started right away. Yeah. So it took for me to understand how the culture is, how people spoke, mm -hmm. the hidden connotations, um, and also getting good grades because you still yeah. want to keep your yep. scholarship. And it was just a lot. And this was also the first time I was ever living without my family. Mm. So I, did, I was missing that support system. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of peop Indian people around me, but these were all new people and they right. were all struggling with, or like they were all trying to figure out how to navigate this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a lot of things happening at the same time. Um, I would have loved that. <laughs> it was if it was like in increments yes it is what it is yeah, yeah. I, I can only imagine we have um another graduate student in my program that started yeah. this year too from Ghana and mm -hmm. so I can kind of watch him go through that like yeah process he's never been to the states either so yeah yeah it, it's just interesting right like same thing he came I think maybe a week before classes yeah. started and so uh, and same thing, no family, you know, he was connected with, um, you know, kind of the, the system here of people from Ghana type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but still it's it is one of those things that's kind of like uh the rest of us trying to be aware of like sometimes we might need to give him more context or more yeah just like background on, background. on yes on what's being talked about or yeah. you know different methods of doing things um compared yeah. to Ghana all those kind of things so um yeah, yeah. I, I can only imagine the difficulty in that and and for you being in Savannah um <laughs> and knowing the demographics of the area just like in general outside yeah. of the school I can imagine that that yeah uh, was hard I think Savannah was a little bit hard, but I eventually moved to New New Jersey and that was more shocking for me because mm-hmm. I feel like New Jersey is a democratic state and it has a lot of diversity, mm-hmm. but I still saw that in the organization that I worked in, it was very white and very male dominated. Mm-hmm which was shocking because you're constantly surrounded with so many different ethnicity and it's still like all the higher positions were still very concentrated amongst men was that did you get a did you get to go into design or or furniture out of your master's program so I after I graduated I started applying for jobs and um, that's how I ended up with this furniture company mm-hmm. uh, it was really cool because it was what I wanted to do right. I wanted to design right. furniture um, but something that I realized I was missing was I was not getting the hands-on approach that I wanted in mm-hmm. my design because it was a contract furniture manufacturing company yep we were only designing we were never really making anything and yeah yeah no I told I 100 percent yeah understand that that's the um balance I try to strike in my mind of even going for this master's degree and understanding that a lot of the learnings are geared towards just design versus mm-hmm. like learning the techniques of actually making yeah. it though we I mean we do both but it's definitely um more time is placed on the the design, design. aspect because like the end result for most students going through it is to go to a design firm that just yeah. does you know does the design yeah. and I'm coming from a background of I've already had my own business for five years where it's like you know I make stuff that's yeah yeah that's where I want to be and that's where I want to go afterwards is to continue that of making my own is that what led you to to create world and and whittle is to get the hands-on again yes um so when I was still working for that company I worked for them for three years and I constantly kept craving making pieces by hand. So what I used to do is on weekends, long weekends, instead of like going out with friends and going on vacations, I was driving to New York City. That was like two way, two hours, one way drive to the city from uh, Princeton. And I used to go there, use communal woodworking studios and just make stuff in wood and I did that for close to two years and in 2019 um, my husband and I we decided to move to Canada immigrate to Canada for good and when we were like in the transition process I was like you know what I'm not gonna get a job I'm just gonna give Wall and Whittle a try because I was already like posting stuff on Instagram and it was just like a hobby thingy at that point. But I was like, this really brings me joy. Like this makes me happy. And I used to live for the weekends, you know, like so that I can drive and I can make stuff. I used to research about wood. I used to buy wood from different people and just create stuff. And a lot of failed attempts, but it was so much fun. And then, yeah. 
when during as part of your program your masters did you learn techniques of working with the wood specifically um a little bit actually so um i learned just the basics of woodworking um we did vacuum forming um laser cutting mm -hmm. 3d printing a little bit of everything um yeah and if i would have kept doing that like if i would have taken more courses i could have done more oh i also did metal fabrication that was really fun mm -hmm. um yeah so I, that's what i loved about scad is it was a lot of hands-on like we did a lot of design mm -hmm. but the objective at the end of each class was to actually make a piece yeah and it doesn't matter how you're making it but you have to make it so a lot of kids did rely on 3d printing and other things but um there were a bunch who handmade stuff mm -hmm. yeah 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 definitely uh, same with with my program we yeah. i mean at the end of each class you have the physical object that you've been like yeah. designing um yeah it I think I benefit from having the past you know five to ten years of woodworking though just to yeah. like even just understanding like okay on the computer I can make that happen yeah. in real life it's a much more complicated thing oh yeah to make happen <laughs> I, I remember tweaking so many designs uh, so they could be easy to manufacture mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah do, do you think uh, you do you believe that it's an advantage of knowing how to make it um, before you start a project or do you think it can be a disadvantage because you already know how to make it which doesn't challenge you to like right. figure out how to make it I think it goes both directions right um yeah. I I'm personally trying to push myself um, because I've allowed, I will say, I have allowed the limitations of where my skills are at to dictate my design for the past yeah. five years. Now that means my, I mean, my design advances as my skill advances. Yes. Um, but I'm really pushing myself to yeah. take advantage and focus more on the design first. Mm -hmm. Um and try to say okay this is something I can figure out you know down yeah. the line with skill because now I also have I feel like there's the resource of all these other people who do have all these other skills so yeah I'm taking advantage of it's not just me <laughs> in a workshop trying to figure this out on my own that there's like a bunch of people who can help problem solve that yeah. um but there are because outside of my own shop I also you know have spent the last I've, I have taken advantage of, you know, 18 years I spent also in manufacturing environments too. Mm -hmm. So like, I may not have spent an awful lot of time running a CNC myself, mm -hmm. but understanding how things have to get laid out to yeah. be manufacturable has definitely been an advantage, I think, yeah. in that regard. Um, it helps me maybe think a few steps ahead on mm -hmm like layout and stuff like that when we are being requested to do things on like cnc or you know yeah. 3d printing which i've never 3d printed in my life so that one does scare me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um i'm hopeful that that will come out but i'm curious since you've had you know you've gone through what like i'm kind of going through right now yeah. i'm curious in your practice now mm -hmm. Do you sketch things out before you make them? A lot. I love mm -hmm. sketching. Um, but what I've come to realize is when you sketch something, you already have an idea in your mm -hmm. mind. Uh, but a lot of pieces that I make are with an intention of telling a story. And sometimes when I push myself to like, or I make myself stick with the sketch, it kind of restricts my design mm -hmm. from being what it is. So over the last couple of years, I've really allowed myself to like 
break free of sketches. So I do sketch a lot, but I don't necessarily keep looking at the sketch mm. when I'm making the pieces. I have an idea in mind and then I let my pieces be what they want to mm. be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that has been the biggest challenge for me because my practice has not been to sketch. My practice mm. has been you know, I see a piece of wood and when I see it, I see immediately what I want oh, it to be. Yeah. And, yeah. and, but it's all up here. And so yeah. like, I just do it. I just make it. Yeah. I don't sketch it out. Um, and so that's actually been like really hard. Like naturally I put lots of curves and, you know, mm -hmm. organic shapes into my work yeah. and it's been hard to emulate that into a 3D design software to create mm -hmm. that same yeah. curvature that I like in mm -hmm. the pieces I'm working on now so it's yeah it's all a big learning curve and it does yeah. there's benefits I think to sketching and to um modeling stuff up because I do yeah. intend to bring in some productivity aspects like I have it's still in pieces, but I have a CNC that I will have in my own shop to yeah. try to take care of some of the things that, you know, if a machine does it, it just goes faster than if I do it type thing. Yeah. Um, so I have to get good at that, but still I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to translate to necessarily business wise yeah. going forward. I hear you. I also feel like, um, when you have um, a software that is designing for you, even though it's your own design, um, the software is kind of dictating how the design is. Um, and I feel like it could be an advantage, but it could be a major disadvantage too, you know? Um, what I was trying to say was um, when you're working with softwares, they could be restricting in a way, you know? Uh, whereas, like you said, you look at the wood, you envision something in it, and then you start making it. I feel like that is so much more freeing approach. I mean, I understand there are two different things, uh, because if you want to mass manufacture, you have to, you can't look at the wood and <laughs> decide what you want to do. But I also, over the years, I've realized that I like working on one one-off pieces and they're just two different ways of, of approaching design and yeah 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 definitely do you do are you doing your own unique pieces that you then sell or are you doing like a commission piece where someone's giving you some like parameters to stay within I I I do commissions but I do commissions on the pieces that I've made in the past. So okay. somebody can commission the same piece again. Obviously it's gonna look a little different because the grain of the wood changes and mm -hmm. things. Uh, but I've not really done commissions where somebody comes to me and tells me, this is what I want. These are the dimensions. Could you make that for me? Mm -hmm. I just, that's not the kind of model that I wanna work with. Mm -hmm. um, my idea for myself over the next years, next few years is to just create a bunch of sculptures, one off and sell them. I, I mean, mm -hmm. that is what I'm envisioning for myself right now. Yeah. What's the path you take for doing that? Are you doing, you know, the combination of things like social media, galleries, that type of thing? Um Yes, both. So um, a lot of social media um, and a lot of my customers come from Instagram. Um, but slowly I've also started working with local galleries. Um, I've done some wholesale orders in the past. And yeah, just a mix of all of that, really. Mm -hmm. And over the next few years, I want to work with more galleries, bigger more established galleries um yeah so I'm like slowly tweaking my portfolio to kind of attract the galleries that I want to work with mm -hmm. yeah 
Did you get any experience of doing that within graduate school at all? Not really. Yeah. My program, it, it just went by so quickly, really. <laughs> um, and to be very frank, I was not really thinking about a lot of these things. Um, I knew a lot of uh, students in my class were doing PR for themselves and they were reaching out to galleries, interior designers, all of these things, but I was not really doing that. Mm -hmm. If I, if I could go back, I would have done that and done a lot of social media market my products, mm -hmm. um, done shows because there are so many amazing shows where you can show your work, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just a different kind of marketing, like just putting your product out there for industry experts to see. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, unfortunately, I think there's quite a few barriers of entry to that, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Cost yeah. being pre the predominant yes. one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was very frank when I applied for grad school. One of the reasons I was is so that I knew that the program I'm in specifically goes to all of these shows that I've wanted mm -hmm. to go to and I could not afford them like on yeah. my own. Yeah. Um, and so that was like one of the reasons is to be able to get in and network with people that I mm -hmm. can then hopefully have relationships with and, yeah. and do something outside of school um, yeah. with them. But yeah, I think that's a big one. And then it's still <laughs> kind of like you said, your experience out right after grad school of working for the furniture company, it is still a predominantly white male dominated. Oh yeah, for field. sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. And my biggest, um, so I was anyways struggling with imposter syndrome and self-esteem at that point. But what was happening was I was in, at, in design meetings where everybody had a voice and everybody knew what they wanted to do because a lot of furniture industry is dictated by by trends mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do was I was like okay this is beautiful but a lot of our designs are lo lacking femininity like mm -hmm. let's bring that into play like let's look at different fabrics or different, mm -hmm. you know, like let's bring a new fresh aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I received a lot of resistance in that department, um, which also took some more hit on my yeah, yeah. self-esteem. Yeah. So with Wall and Whittle, I feel like Wall and Whittle has given me the confidence to like speak my own true voice. Mm -hmm. Um and obviously it's not for everybody, like people who are gravitated towards design and aesthetics that I bring are going to get gravitated towards me. But what I like is this is my true voice. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm not doing it because I have to do it, you know? Yeah. 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 Do you feel like if you were to use a few words to describe your aesthetic, what would those words be um wabi sabi but not necessarily aesthetics of wabi sabi like it's more of the philosophy of wabi sabi that my design talks about and i initially thought my design was minimalist but i just don't like that word for <laughs> my design cuz i i love drama in my mm -hmm. pieces and they're simple pieces but there is a lot going on mm -hmm. in my pieces. Um, so I would say wabi-sabi philosophically, if, that, <laughs> if that's an acceptable answer. Oh, of course it yeah. is. Of course it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. I uh, yeah. I don't like the word minimalist at all. Um, <laughs> I wish yeah. there were better words for, for yeah. that kind of style. Um, and I think do you think that's influenced by your Indian culture? Um, that I really struggle with this question because 
a lot of time people come to me and they are like, how is your design influenced by Indian culture? And I struggle with that because I I don't want to be dishonest and say it it is because it's not. I feel like I my design is influenced more by Japanese culture than Indian culture. Um, because when I learned about wabi-sabi, I actually learned about wabi-sabi in architecture school. Uh, I learned it through one of my professors and I just gravitated towards it. And it wasn't until I was struggling with imposter syndrome that I like started reading books about wabi-sabi. And I started, I realized that wabi-sabi was more than aesthetics. It's it's a way of ex embracing yourself, accepting yourself, accepting change, everything opposite of what we have learned. You know, like we've been taught that as women, we have to be beautiful and we have to be youthful and, you know, everything, our life needs to be perfect. But that's not how life is you know you go through bad things and you go through difficult things and that shape you and that's part of your story and I feel like that is what gave me comfort and one of the reasons that wood really like stuck like wood was my chosen material is because that is what you see in wood you know you there are no two identical trees. Every tree is going to be unique. The branches are going to be different, you know, like a woodpecker is going to come and peck and create a hole. And that is beautiful. And we love it. We we like, like I work with a lot of spalted wood and spalted wood has gone through trauma. It's the, the beauty comes from trauma and we embrace that. And I feel like, if we can do that for woods, why can't we do that for ourselves, you know? And I feel like that is why I gravitated towards wabi-sabi. And three years in, and I'm still creating pieces around the same idea because it's one word, but it's like there's so much wisdom in it. And you mm -hmm. can keep going back and rediscover the philosophy. Uh, yeah. So when I started out, I started out by creating pieces around beauty, like the aspect of beauty in terms of physical beauty. Um, but now I am exploring the idea of beauty in impermanence of time. And yeah, it just it's just so much fun. Like, yeah, using that as the backbone for my business. Yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah. I think what you said there is just really powerful and it just makes me think like, yes, yeah. I too, like I, if I'm, you know, looking for a piece of wood, I'm kind of looking for the gnarliest piece of wood oh, yes. that I can find. <laughs> yes. um, like I am one who's like, oh, straight grain. No, I don't want it. Yeah. I want something that's, you know, yeah, has all of these imperfections. Mm -hmm. Um and it's something that's celebrated and that is interesting how then the resulting work gets celebrated yet we mm -hmm. kind of put blinders on in celebrating like the uniqueness or the flaws of mm -hmm. human beings <laughs> yeah um so yeah super interesting though I would say maybe not directly but you know um Obviously, I don't, I don't have to tell you this, but India is Asia. So, yeah, <laughs> like there is a connection there, you know. Oh, yeah, I think to, so. To and Japanese and all of that. Like it's, um, yeah. Historically, there would be connections there, I would imagine. I think so. I, even if it's not so much in the aesthetics, I feel like, um, in India, we like to celebrate or like respect every material that we work with. And I feel like that is something that I've learned from my grandfather. He's mm -hmm. like, every material is the collaborator. It's not a slave to you. And mm -hmm. that is something that I feel um, 
I believe in mm-hmm. because I see there are so many amazing designers making beautiful designs but sometimes I feel like designers forget to respect materials mm-hmm. you know and I feel like that is something that I wish I never lose mm-hmm. <laughs> in my aesthetics yeah no I think that's something that should be again um I don't, I can't think of the right word, but it's something that I would say is common across both Asian and like indigenous um, oh, cultures yeah. I of agree. just like, you know, respecting that and seeing it. I mean, that's definitely what has pulled me to wood over and over again. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that even when it's a completed piece, it's still living in a way it still brings in moisture and releases moisture and Mm -hmm. all of that like it's something that should be absolutely Mm -hmm. uh, respected to me so I think that is a commonality and I do feel like it's making its way into more western civilization uh, ways of thinking like I feel like I've seen more artists and makers really trying to kind of get back to nature or get back mm-hmm. to the material of it all yeah I agree. yeah, yeah. and ha- so how long have has whirl and whittle been been a business so i started so i registered the business in 2019 okay. and we moved to Canada. It was like end of the year, so I did a bunch of Christmas markets. Mm-hmm. So I was just turning these candle holders and like little bowls and selling them. Um, And then 2020 happened. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I really wanted to work in collections rather than just creating a ton of pieces. Because for me, I was like, I want this business to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, I created my first collection. It was called Your Scars Are Beautiful. Um, It's a way of like embracing not just our physical but emotional scars and again I used a lot of like spalted wood burl wood imperfect woods to create pieces so my first real collection came out in June 2020 so that's when I really started selling collections yeah and since then I've done four five collections yeah okay what is the process you work through to create the story is the story it sounds like because you you kind of said it earlier like the story's created before any piece is created yeah okay so um I usually a lot of times I'm not forcing myself to come up with stories because when you force it, it's just, it mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's not authentic to me. And that's why I take like a long time to come up with collections. Um, but I usually start with stories based on what is happening to me. So like to give you an example, my first collection, Your Scars Are Beautiful was right after I had got a scar on my hand. Um, I was just whittling a piece of wood and I scratched myself. I don't know if you can see it. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I happen to have one pretty much in the same spot. Same spot. (laughs) (laughs) I got another one. Like, I don't know if you can see it, but (laughs) a a few weeks back. Um, But this was the first one that I got. Uh, on my hand and this is when when I was still dating my husband and he would often see me like play with it play with the scar it was still fresh and one day he just like sat me down and he is like you know what you were doing something that you loved and it was challenging and you hurt yourself but you know it's it's beautiful like imagine 50 years from now somebody asking you about this car and you're like I did something that was really scary and it made me who I am like I, I'm still doing it I, I overcame the challenges and still kept making pieces so 
and he he said your scars are beautiful and it just stuck with me you know and that eventually turned into my first collection i, I think you All right. I had it at least muted, so we got <laughs> it's that okay. good. Um, but I missed the kind of the end part of of. Oh, sorry. That. Yeah. So, till where did you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> talking about when he was talking about like it, you yeah, know, it, being, it being beautiful. Yeah. So, like he just said, imagine like. 50 years from now, somebody asking you about this car, you could be like, okay, this was the first time I was whittling and I hurt myself, but it did not stop me from like creating pieces in wood mm -hmm. and I'm still making pieces in wood. So yeah, this was scary, but I overcame that. And mm -hmm. this car is just a reminder of my victory over um, something that was scary. And he's like, the scar is beautiful. Like, scars are beautiful because they are physical reminders of you you fighting mm -hmm. and you know surviving and it just stuck with me and I I, I actually started creating cre pieces on this concept even before I established World and Whittle but I actually wanted to like because I really loved the concept and I was yeah. like this and it was resonating with a lot of people. I was like, this is amazing because it it helped me overcome this idea of like getting a scar as a woman. Mm -hmm. This should be a part of my collection. And even to date, there are people who come to me and they are like, you know what? I want you to commission. I want to commission a piece on your scars are beautiful. And a while back, um, this or actually last year a lady came to me and she's like I am a breast cancer survivor and um, she had to get one of her breasts taken out and she's like I want to commission a piece where you have like this big piece of wood missing so we made like a big bowl in you um, you wood mm -hmm. and it was there was like this big bark that was part of the wood blank that we took out and it was a very simple piece but it was it was just an honor to do that to some like make that for somebody else and I know like for her that piece was really important and yeah she to date she like still talks to me on Instagram and she's like I still have it in my entry hall and she wanted like this pop of color so we did like an orange piece of wood but it was just the concept was really powerful because it it was not just my piece but it was now mm -hmm. um, something that was telling her story yeah yeah I I can imagine like you like you said too I think it it probably resonates with a lot of women um mm -hmm. I mean, just in the biological functionality of our bodies, we end yeah. up having lots mm -hmm. of scars, Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I think, um, and probably the time it came out too, I'm thinking June, 2020, there was a lot mm -hmm. socially, politically uh, oh, yeah. that got started. It's still going on, but got started yes. then. Um, and so I would imagine that it probably spoke to quite a few people. Yeah. Yeah. How many pieces do you generally do in a collection? It varies really, but I try to make at least like 30 to 35 pieces. Oh. And they are smaller pieces. Yeah. So like you can kind of see there's a mm -hmm. little vase over there. They are small pieces. Um and because I take almost six or so months to create a collection, it makes sense to make a bunch of pieces. So a bunch of pieces are very similar aesthetically, mm -hmm. uh, but I have like two or three colors going on. So it 
like a lot of people can get gravitated towards it. Um, but this time, my latest collection is the collection of wooden sculptures. So they rock, uh, little rocking wooden sculptures. But I only made nine this time because I feel like sculpture takes a lot of time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I I don't like rushing the process. I like to live with pieces and like kind of chip away mm-hmm. every few days. And my living room is full with full of sculptures because I like to look at yeah. them if when I'm walking by. Um, so yeah, this time I only made nine pieces. Yeah. Okay. But it changes from collection to collection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's the what's the story of this collection? Um, so like I said earlier, uh, this is the first collection where I'm um, playing on the idea of beauty and impermanence in terms of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, earlier this year, or not earlier, but like in July this year, um, we went to Israel to meet my husband's family. His parents lived there. And it was my first time going there. So uh, it was really fun. And I was just finishing up a wholesale order. So the idea was to like not (laughs) worry about work. I was just there on a vacation. Uh, But it's desert. And it was like full of these like really big um, boulders, like bleached boulders, Mm -hmm. like white and beige boulders of... um, stones everywhere and I was like this is so beautiful these are such beautiful boulders and a lot of it was like by the sea so all of these pieces of stones are constantly hit by the sea and it's creating this unique aesthetic you know Um, so I wanted to play with this idea of like transformation over time that makes you unique and I don't know it just came to me and I was like okay I need to make like these sculptures that are very unique almost pebble kind but not really it's like still a little rustic but smooth because water is hitting it and it just talks about the idea of transformation over time that is beautiful and it is what it is because it's transforming for a really long time. So, yeah. Yeah, I really, I really love that idea. Um, yeah. I've been doing a lot of research for some of my um, pieces and they have me kind of looking at that kind of nature on nature change of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whether yeah. it be water affecting pieces or um, even like in deserts, like the the wind and the sand, you know, yeah. carving into pieces and stuff like that. So yeah, um, it definitely, and it creates such beautiful um, pieces. Yeah. And they are all so unique. And mm-hmm. what I liked about that was um, it, it's transforming, but it's still itself. So like it started out as a piece and it would hit by water and it's transformed, but you kind of still see reminiscence of what it was. And I, I'm calling this collection in the gaps left behind because it's now different, but yeah. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah. Um, we are actually at the end of our um, time together. So yeah. I do I do want to give you a chance, though, uh, to let people know, like, how to find you, follow along with you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Um And my website is wallenwittle.com. Yeah. <laughs> and everything is connected with each other. <laughs> so if you find me at one place, you can find me everywhere. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here. Thank you for having me. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. All right. So again, that was Pooja of Whirl and Whittle. I'll include the links on how you can follow along with her in the show notes for today's episode. 
Best place to find that is in the description box for the episode on your podcast app. Please follow along with the podcast over on Instagram. That's at crafting a revolution, no spaces, underscores, or dashes, all one word at crafting a revolution. Say hi to your regular hosts as well. Myself, Katie Freeman at Freeman Furnishings and my co-host Katie Thompson, Women of Woodworking. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, it would also be fantastic if you head on, on over to iTunes and left us a five-star review. All right. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. And in the meantime, as always, let's go craft a revolution. She, her, fan, they got something they want to say.